I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Book Chat, the monthly books podcast hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer, which celebrates rereading books and books that are more than two years old. And we have recorded this introduction 487 times as my tech isn't working. Hello, Bobby. Hello. That's right. We're back and we are raring to go. And the reason I sound so enthusiastic is because Pandora always tells me that I sound miserable in our intros in a nice way. Yes, yeah, it's, it's in a really nice way. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be back. This is the first podcast I've done since my baby was born. So I may sound a little foggy. I may sound foggy and Bobby may sound sad but as he says it's just my voice yeah nobody please nobody worry about me we've had some great emails in our in our very short absence including one from Siobhan who is a librarian and and she says she's been adding some of the books we've been covering into her library's collection which is is really lovely to hear also her library is in a place called Moose Jaw Saskatchewan in Canada which is really cool and sounds like a setting from one of the books we'll be talking about today. It really does. I wanted to shout out an email from Maeve who has vindicated me into thinking I wasn't losing the plot when I said I thought I'd already read Memorial by Brian Washington as a short story first. She emailed to say she'd had the same feeling and she managed to track down an extract which was published in The New Yorker under the title heirlooms so much more fiction than i initially realized started as a new yorker story two of the stories from the collection one of the collections we'll be discussing today in fact did which makes both of those emails incredibly relevant and we'll drop a link to the brian washington story in the show notes bobby what are you reading right now so shameless bit of self-promotion but i am doing an event at waterstones brighton next week interviewing the author of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, Gabrielle Zevin. That's awesome. I wish I had the capability to get to Brighton right now. I'd love to see you guys chat. Thank you. And uh, yes, I'm sorry you can't be there. <laughs> that sounded so sarcastic. I am sorry you can't be there. I actually am. I'm you know, The reason I mention it as well is because I'm currently reading her previous book, which was also a smash hit, but one I wasn't actually familiar with. It's called The Storied Life of AJ Fickrey early days but i can already tell it's going to make me cry which is you know sort of a low bar for me but but also nice i like i really like it when a book makes me cry what about you pandora what are you reading I just finished Megan Nolan's new one, Ordinary Human Failings, very good title that, about a tabloid journalist called Tom who embeds himself in a working class Irish family whose young child is thought to have murdered a toddler from the council estate where they live in order to nab his career defining scoop. It's very different to her first novel, the much lauded acts of desperation, but um, I think it's very good. That does sound really good. And I, I haven't actually read acts of desperation desperation yet either but i've heard great things from nausgaard and others 
Exactly. Nascar called her a hot literary talent or the next big literary talent, didn't he? I'm not a fan particularly of Nascar's books, but that kind of endorsement goes a seriously long way, doesn't it? It's a bit like an endorsement from Sadie Smith or Jonathan Franzen. Who are the other ones that you think an endorsement goes a really long way from? Oh, that is a really good question. And I wish you'd given me time to think. Well, it's it's any sort of, uh, it's any of the 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 big prize and, and Ian McEwen maybe and Ishiguro you know the sort of the titans when I see a Zadie Smith endorsement you're right I do go yeah okay I'm in right well after throwing you with that question shall we get on to today's books all ye who enter here this is some in-depth book chat so spoilers ahead All ye who enter here indeed. Bobby, let's talk about your pick for this month. So my book this month is Close Range by Annie Proulx, which is a collection of short stories or quote-unquote Wyoming stories. Had you heard of this book before? I'm wishing I'd looked up how to pronounce her surname before I bought it from the bookshop and pronounced her Annie Proulx. I'd never read the book except I had unwittingly heard of one of the short stories. It could be Proulx. I think, it. well, you know... I'm sure people will let us know in an email, uh, Team Pandora, Team Bobby. Yes, one of the short stories is called Brokeback Mountain. You might have heard of it. Did you know, Pandora, that Brokeback Mountain was based on a short story? I had no idea. I mean, I clocked it as soon as I opened my copy of the book because I pre-ordered it into Queen's Park books and then the baby and I went along to pick it up and I um, opened up the wrapper and I clocked as soon as I saw it because it has a movie still on the front so they were clearly aware that the film would be an int- or still is an introduction to Prul's work for a lot of people I wonder that how that feels for her I wonder if she cares I really hate a movie still cover even though I know it's how they get fans of movies to read books and gives the book a second wind etc etc but it's just not very pretty It'd be really, really smart of a short story collection to put a movie still on the cover from a movie that's not based on a short story in the book, just to throw you off. (laughs) In in terms of how she feels, she's actually said she regrets writing it, but specifically because people miss the point, Uh, specifically straight men, she said, send her lots of fan fiction or advice about how it could have had a happier ending. Really? So they rewrite it so they end up together? Yeah, like like fan fiction, like like a happy ending fan fiction, basically. And the Brokeback Mountain thing with this book is a really interesting phenomenon because there is a, this thing that happens sometimes when a short story in a collection is made into a Hollywood film and it suddenly reaches this level of hugeness which totally eclipses the stories it appears alongside. Arrival with Amy Adams was based on a short story in a collection. A really famous example of this is um, a short story by Stephen King in the collection Different Seasons. That story is called Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. So no prizes for guessing what film that became. That's riveting. I had no idea that Shawshank Redemption was a short story. I have to tell my dad because I have watched that film so many times because it's his favourite, along with Hannibal. I also had no idea until I was researching it after reading it that the story was first published in The New Yorker in 1997, as I mentioned above. And my other favourite in the collection... God, that one would make a good movie, was also published in 1998 in The New Yorker first. Can I take a punt here and say that you're talking about The Mud Below? Ovi. 
Yeah, I can't wait to talk about that one either. Well, let's talk about them a bit more generally. I think like with the David Saloy book we did a few episodes ago, we can take a few stories rather than talk about every single one of the 11 in the collection. For sure. I think we'd be here for about 11 hours otherwise. Yeah. And speaking about David Saloy, speaking of David Saloy, a couple of months, I, I, I owe you a, an apology, Pandora, because a couple of months ago, I complained when you made me read All That Man Is. I said it was depressing. This is more depressing, really, isn't it? Everyone's drunk and sad. The people and animals die constantly. At one point, a, a mother hurls her crying baby into an icy river to get rid of it. I kind of feel like that's what life is, though, in the kind of Wyoming she's writing about. I mean, I don't know how many crying babies are thrown into icy rivers or what have you, and obviously that's not particularly joyous to read, but it does seem like she's fairly accurately portraying a hard working class life. And I actually think you feel guiltier about it being depressing than I found it depressing reading it. Yeah, I and I, I actually um I can tell that you liked it and I'm I'm somewhat surprised because I, I, I think you worry when you make someone else read a sad book or a, a grim book. <laughs> Don't you? Yeah, the subtitle of the book is Wyoming Stories. Eleven stories about the lives of everyday Wyoming residents in the past hundred or so years. Wyoming, for a bit of context, is incredibly rural. It makes for a really lonely setting. It's the least populous of all the US states. It's made up of mostly grazing land and wilderness and something called badlands, which doesn't sound good. All right, Wikipedia, what are the other least populous states? I, so I, I was surprised because I thought Alaska would be less populous. But there you go. Or maybe maybe Alaska wasn't counted, but most populous New York, New York, I'd imagine. Anyway, we digress, but if anyone wants to tell us via email what the least populous the other least populous US states are it's bookchatpod at gmail.com Wyoming is a tough old place and most of these characters are ranchers or riders or itinerant workers whose lives are really tough too and while there's there is a lot of beauty in this book it is incredibly bleak I first read it as a teenager when I picked it up to read it again for the first time in about 15 years I was surprised by how dark and relentless it is it's also fairly dense in history and horse riding and cowboys and wagons and whatnot. So I think all of that is the reason that I, I thought it might not be your bag, Pandora. So how did you get on? It sounds like better than I expected. I actually loved about half of them. I wasn't hooked with the first story, the half-skinned steer, most of which was a road trip. And I'm not good at reading road trips. I've never been into them. I've never, for example, read On the Road by Jack Kerouac. It did seem like an odd story to start the collection with. As I mean, well, I don't know. I thought it was one of the less strong ones. What did you think? I liked that one. I thought it was a, a good start for this particular collection because I think it debuts two of the main themes which are stubborn masculinity and the outside world just being totally relentless and what I mean by that is it's about an old man who says he's totally fine to do this really long drive then he gets lost in the snow and most likely freezes to death so as I said this whole thing's a barrel of laughs how about the other stories? What what did you like? Actually, that's a kind of side note that I found particularly interesting as a British reader, and I imagine other people might as well, is that it's completely normal in middle America to drive 12 hours to get somewhere, to go see a friend. Whereas if you drive 12 hours in the UK, you get from London to 
the very top of Scotland. It was a bit of yes. like a culture, a culture gap with that. I liked Brokeback Mountain, which I imagine will save as the, the sort of main meal. And I loved the mud below. I also enjoyed the occasional oddly short story. There's a couple of them in the collection. We're talking like one page, which is where her sense of humour, her really macabre sense of humour comes out. There's one where a woman cuts a hole in the roof because her rancher husband won't allow her up to the attic and she finds all his dead lovers up there. <laughs> Yeah, it's so it's so grim. And you're right, I think that one's like three paragraphs long. <laughs> it's got this line which is really ominous. When you live a long way out, you make your own fun. There's also there's also a story, I think the shorter one that I really liked is where a guy a guy cuts off a frozen man's legs to steal his fancy boots, and then someone else finds the disembodied legs and thinks that his horse has eaten him. Yes, the blood bay. It's particularly interesting because those two stories are actually very funny in, as I said, this really like dark, grim way. But most of the stories aren't funny at all. They are, as you say, about these hard, hard lives, often living at the very fringes of modern civilization. And I really love that. She doesn't anymore, but she lived for many years in Wyoming. So she isn't doing some sort of literary voyeurism, which, to be fair, I do. I want this to be on record. I do think that novels need to be able to do. I don't think you have to be ensconced firsthand in absolutely everything you write about. Although I do think, obviously, research is paramount. But it does mean in this case that there is there is this authenticity to them. You really feel it. The other thing that I think lends it this real authenticity and its grit is that she's really lived in, if not this life, then this terrain. She was 56 when her first book was published, which I love. She's she's lived life. Was she life. really? I did, I did not know that. And probably because she's been so prolific since then. This this book is, is, I guess, very much her niche, writing about this hard, beautiful world that these people inhabit. Her other probably more famous book, The Shipping News which would be the one that was published when she was 56. That's all about Newfoundland off Canada and the very tough, old-fashioned people who live there. If you've seen Come From Away, the musical, you'll know the kind of people I mean. Now she writes a lot about the climate for publications like the Paris Review. Her latest novel, her latest book is called Fen, Bog and Swamp, A Short History of Peatland Destruction and Its Role in the Climate Crisis. She's someone seriously in touch with nature, with the North American landscape, with the earth beneath her feet, the people who make a living from that earth. And because of that, there are so many beautiful descriptions of the natural world in this book. My favorite, one of my favorite lines is actually in that first story, The Half-Skinned Steer. She says, The dazzled rope of lightning against the cloud is not the downward bolt, but the compelled upstroke through the heated ether. I feel like such a heathen for admitting this, but I, I'm not great with like abundant nature passages you are you are a lyrical man of the land but the bits you're gonna hate my next book (laughs) is your next book just all about the land that you plow well there are well it's maybe not abundant nature passages but they're in there just to skip those yeah exactly i'll just skip those but it's interesting isn't it how you and i often often love books for entirely different reasons i to me, when I think about this book, what really sticks out are the characters because I'm just really, really character-led, whereas you are uh, led by peats and bogs. <laughs> by rugged mountaintops and, and crashing waves, like Heathcliff. 
Absolutely, it was just very romantic. So, what are your favourite stories, Boggy? Oh, that was you. You set that up. That was good. I know that saying Brokeback Mountain is my favourite story in this collection is like saying Romeo and Juliet is my favourite Shakespeare play. It's great. You don't want to sound cliche by saying it. You basic bitch. It actually wasn't my favourite. I did like it, and I do want to go back and watch the movie. But was that your favourite then? I think so. Yeah, I think I think if I if I'm if I'm being totally honest with myself, I think so. But there are a few that could clinch the title. The Mud Below is one of them. There's this other great one called Job History, which is for me maybe the best summation of the, of the whole book, even if it's not exactly a fun read. It tells the entire life story of a character called Leland Lee, who keeps trying to make something of himself. He tries to open up a gas station or become a trucker or raise hogs. And life just keeps thwarting him and he has to keep starting again from nothing. And it's interspersed with news reports throughout about Vietnam and and recessions and the ozone layer. And it's this really interesting commentary about life in a place like Wyoming, where the world outside doesn't really matter to them it doesn't really touch the sides because they're literally just trying to get by on a day-to-day basis totally the news just doesn't permeate because it would be a luxury to worry about anything as you say beyond getting through each day and it's it's really actually devastating reading that exhausting job history it sort of made me write my own job history in my head and to be very grateful it gives you this insight into how young they grew up in working class rural life as well. Leland marries his wife when he's 17. She's 16. She's pregnant and Leland is proud of it. She is, we learn, a little stout, but looks a confection in pastel sweater sets. I love that turn of phrase. I instantly imagine a teenage girl dressed up like a palmer violet playing at being an adult. You are right. She does characters so well she she the descriptions that they're so succinct but they're so dead on yeah someone else has a plum colored face corrugated with acne i mean as i said what i love about her writing is less the topography which is exactly what many people like boggy love her for and it's more for her spare but poetic prose about her characters it's really interesting since doing this podcast with you and having to read more widely and maybe read more oldly if that could be a word I've realized I always thought I liked really kind of decorative writing and I'm drawn more and more maybe it's my age I'm drawn more and more to spare prose and her prose is very masculine it's about male lives but it's so clever in its compaction and it conveys so much I mean I guess you could sort of say the same for Annie uh, no who we'll get to next but some of the phrases I've underlined hold on I scribbled them down People who are broke are described as having too much month and not enough money, which I love. Someone who is only out for himself is warned, you can't have a fence with only one post. A man looks at a woman like she is hot buttered toast. And three cow punchers are described as savvy and salty with one of them, dirt sheets, a cross-eyed drinker of hair oil. Uh, it's the sort of it's the sort of writing that makes you really jealous as a writer because it's just it's what you want to be able to do. And the guy's name is Dirt Sheets. It's like the the ne- even the names are just so perfect. There's a there's this giant bull in it called Little Kisses. I know. I love that he's just so broke and so desperate for a drink that he's drinking hair oil. They have the best names, particularly Diamond Feltz, who is the rider of Little Kisses, and the subject of my favourite story, The Mud Below. Yeah, The Mud Below is great, and it's all about this bull rider, as you say, Diamond Feltz. Not the nicest guy, 
an anti-hero. Yeah, exactly, and an, an anti-hero, and that's you know that's being kind to him. Uh, a lot of the story is about why he rides bulls, and it's not done in the Ernest Hemingway bullfighting is ballet kind of way. Here, it's it's painful and it's dirty and it it ruins these men's bodies and their lives you've got arms pulled from sockets mouths full of bull hair human beings snapped like towels but it is also kind of romantic and it's kind of beautiful because it it elevates them it gives them a purpose i haven't read any hemingway so i didn't ever imagine bullfighting to be anything other than seriously brutal but i kind of want to read it now i should probably put it out there I'm not a fan of bullfighting, but Hemingway does famously describe it very well, very very graceful uh, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think of it. A real subject of the, can the art be divorced from the artist debate, that guy? He's a bit of a diamond felts, actually, in that his attitude towards bulls isn't the worst thing about him. <laughs> very good way of putting it. This is the first time I've read about bull riding, so not bullfighting. And whilst I would, I don't know if I'd want to watch it. I know it's not bullfighting, but I still don't want to watch someone's arm get wrenched from its socket and get them chucked across a rink. But um, she does make me see the appeal of being a bullfighter, which I'm also not going to be. I just want to read a bit because I think that is actually a really beautiful bit of writing. So this is the first time Diamond Feltz, who's a bit kind of purposeless, I suppose. And he's a teenager and he's got on a bull. He'd been shot out of the cannon, the shock of the violent motion, the lightning shifts of balance, the feeling of power as though he were the bull and not the rider. Even the fright fulfilled some greedy physical hunger in him he hadn't known was there. The experience had been exhilarating and unbearably personal. This might seem like a weird tangent, but did you ever read Stoner by John Williams? No, I can't say the title appeals to me. It sounds a bit like it's about Stifler's mum. So it's not actually about a stoner. It's about a guy whose surname is Stoner. It's this mid-century campus novel, quite depressing. It's by an author called John Williams, and it was rediscovered in the 2000s, and it became this like huge phenomenon. But he's got this other novel, which is less well-known, called Butcher's Crossing, which is quite like this. It's a story of the unromanticized Wild West. It's set in Kansas, so it's just over from Wyoming. And it's about as hopeless as this book is. It's a good book, so skip forward a, skip forward 30 seconds if you don't want it totally ruined. But it's about a group of hunters who head out in search of a legendary herd of buffalo. And they find the buffalo up in the mountains. Then they get trapped in the mountains all winter when they finally make it back, they lose all of the buffalo skins in a river and then they get back to town only to find it's a ghost town and the market for buffalo hides has imploded. So it was all for nothing. Flipping heck, you really do like your books to bring you a grim winter, don't you? Thanks for ruining that one for me as well. You were never going to read that book. But yeah, it's so bleak. But it, it put me in mind of the hopelessness of this book, The Dash Dreams, daring to want more but never quite getting it. And that runs throughout all of the stories. Yeah, and Diamond really wants more. His mum, who grew up on a ranch, wants more for him too. That's why she moves off the ranch. She goes and works in a tourist boutique, which is really interesting as well because it made me realise how much people's knowledge of cowboys and that cowboy lifestyle is is built around tourist shops like she works in. She names her boys Diamond and Pearl. For Diamond, it's the inverse experience the other that he aspires to is not the ranch per se but a life of hard glamour the smells of shit and leather and 
every night in a different town. And I think the reason why I love this story so much is it's basically a building's roman, which is my favourite type of story. It follows the protagonist as they grow up, face hardship, overcome hardship, etc., etc. Dharma is 19 when the story starts. He's a five foot three virgin who was abandoned by his father when he was 13. Then he discovers bull riding and he's able to build a whole new self, not particularly nice self as we've established, where he sleeps with a different woman every night. That story, as much of any of them, I suppose, really lays bare the toxic misogyny of that kind of life. And of course, as we see in Brokeback Mountain, the homophobia. Yeah, because they they aspire to things, but they're not good things. He's a rapist and and that's that's just kind of part of his deal it's not really interrogated he's that's just what he's like i couldn't believe it when he rapes his friend's wife because it's written in a way where you sort of double back we know already he isn't the romantic type earlier in the story it says he had little talent for friendship and affection but the way it's described through darman's eyes just as she wasn't willing made me double back and reread it later a christian peer of his describes it as forcible entry but that's the closest anyone comes to using the word rape and generally when someone attempts rape as in another story the young lady in question is just quietly advised to stay home anyway all this dashed dream chat probably means it's time to talk about your favorite brokeback mountain yes indeed so brokeback mountain is the last story in this collection best to last in my opinion it's undoubtedly the most famous. It's obviously an Oscar-winning film, but it's also been an opera. It's right now a play on the West End. So it's it's done the triple. In my opinion, it deserves to be as big as it is because it's brilliant. It's certainly the most romantic. It's a love story that never uses the word love. You know I'm a sucker for a love story as well. And I almost I almost feel like it comes from a different collection because, it yes, it's really hard and it's really brutal, but it's so tender and so sweet in a way that I can't really identify in any of the other stories. It's about two... Well, so everyone always says it's about two cowboys, but they're actually shepherds, really. They they herd sheep up on the mountains. Ennis Delmar and Jack Twist, they fall in love over the course of one summer on Brokeback Mountain. Then the story after that is about their whole lives afterwards, where the prejudices of a place like Wyoming mean that they just can't be together. I mentioned Romeo and Juliet before. This is just as tragic, and I also think one of the best love stories ever written. It's really interesting. They are shepherds, aren't they? So basically, the the one-sentence summary for that extremely famous film is bogus, because they ain't cowboys. No, yeah, they just wear cowboy hats. I mean, I think everyone, I think definitely in, in a place like the UK... A cowboy is just someone who lives in the West and wears a cowboy hat and boots. Yes, that's true. I learned so many different job titles in this book, like yeah. cow punchers. Yeah. <laughs> not not what it not what it says on the tin. <laughs> no, but like not hugely far off. Yeah, so if you think it's one of the best love stories ever written, it's it's up there with your fave short story then. A really good short story does a lot in a in a really short space, right? And I just find it amazing how much of what makes the movie so timeless is within these 35 pages. The famous image of the shirts, if you know, you know. The fight on the mountain, the embrace when they come back together again after so many years. If you can't fix it, you've got to stand it. And the most famous speech, which quite amazingly, and I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't quite believe it when I watched the scene back, it's word for word exactly as it's written in the book. I would read it out, but... I'm going to let Jake Gyllenhaal do it for me. And I'm not you. I can't. 
make it on a couple of high altitude fucks once or twice a year? You are too much for me, ass. You sound like a horse and a bitch. I wish I knew how to quit you. I really want to do an impression of that, but it will be horrible. It's so iconic that I heard it in his voice when I read it. Instantly, I googled the reviews of the film after reading the book to see how it compared, and it got astoundingly good reviews. Some critics even said it was better than the book. <laughs> Wait till you read the fan fiction. If we want to lasso back to our first episode, see what I did there. This story is quite Tin Man by Sarah Winman, because both are about a romance between two men, which is forbidden by a heteronormative masculine society. They both linger on the straighter, more buttoned up of the two who ends up left behind surviving because he hid that part of himself away but basically being left with nothing even spookier i realized as i was making this connection those two guys are called ennis and ellis i wonder if she was inspired by it they're quite different stories so probably not i think what really comes across in this story almost more so than anything is how hard the job is so not just the life you read a lot about how hard the life is in the collection but the job it sounds absolutely unremitting sleeping on a mountaintop with all the sheep so that they don't get eaten by coyotes but you might get eaten by a coyote and you don't even have a lamp what's hard about that it takes sort of like (laughs) four hours to get to and from just for a meal i read in an interview that prul described her life to an interviewer in the early 90s as wild, talking about how she threw a knife at someone she hated, she drove north in the southbound lane, she hung out with a wide variety of rough dudes in a wide variety of situations. So you sense that she has met some of these men who live this life. They live hard, fast and grim lives. And on that note, by the way, I thought this would make you laugh, she says in that same I think it was a 2016 interview with The Guardian, that she cannot bear navel-gazing novels about that family dysfunctional thing. And she thinks that people miss big books that care. You sense that she might be talking about Eugenides and Franz in there. Oh, yeah. I think her and I would get on. Actually, no, that's wishful thinking. I think she'd probably throw a knife at me. I think you have some navel-gazy in you. Sorry, pal. (laughs) How do you think the stories read today? I think that's a really good question for this one because it does it does suffer a bit from how much uh, how much the way we think has changed since the 90s because the women in this book are treated atrociously and they they very rarely get to speak for themselves you do get a few more prominent female characters in the stories later on but for the most part they're sex objects their treatments very much glossed over as part of part of life but then you know for these men maybe it is these these are stories about toxic men and the damage they inflict it is a bit like all that man is in that respect men like this do think like this about women i sort of silently applauded when alma leaves ennis after realizing not just that he's getting in love with someone else but he's just like the worst husband ever i do sort of sense as you say that it's true to life And what's also true to life is that toxic masculinity punishes all of them. The men don't fare too well either, particularly in this story. And I think it'd be easy for us in our cosy little homes to go, oh, life isn't like that now. That was then. But how do we know what life is like in rural working class communities 
in the States, I bet a lot of it still rings true. The hard scrabble conditions, the homophobia, the sidelining of women, the extreme weather, the loneliness, the vastness of the landscape. I mean, just because mobile phones now exist doesn't mean a lot of that wouldn't still be the same. Yeah, it, it, it has to be read in context. Um, we actually had a brilliant email from from an American listener, Lucy, who was reading the book ahead of this episode and said she couldn't help but think of the, the Matthew Shepard murder, which happened in Wyoming in 1998. It was all over the papers. I remember doing an entire assembly about it in school. That was, that was how big its impact was. I remember doing that for Leah Betts. So Matthew Shepard, I didn't realise this was in Wyoming until this email. Matthew Shepard was a 21-year-old student. He was at the University of Wyoming. He was gay. And he was killed in a really horrific homophobic attack in the town of Laramie. It had a massive effect on conversations around the world, on homophobia, on hate crime legislation, on things like that. But as Lucy points out in her email, in America, it also led to a lot of bad press and national distaste for Wyoming specifically. The toxic masculinity and the intense homophobia associated with these communities. Brokeback Mountain was first published in The New Yorker about a year before Matthew's murder, which makes it incredibly prescient. And that didn't go unnoticed at the time. In a review from, I think, 1999 in the London Review of Books, A.O. Scott wrote... She seems to have understood the crime before it occurred to have rendered its physical and social setting in such detail as to make it, if not comprehensible, then at least imaginable. I love our listeners. We've had such helpful emails for this episode. Please keep them coming. You are, yeah, teaching us lots. I was wondering how Poole's community in Wyoming received it. I'm sure she must have got asked about that in an interview, but I haven't had time to hunt around and find it. I also wonder how that community responded to the film, which obviously came seven years later. I remember it being controversial at the time of the film, or at least it was derided by by more conservative types, you know, the jokes about gay cowboys and press, which only focused on the sex scenes. And I, I remember Heath Ledger vocally talking out against that. Um, I mean, I like to think things have come a long way since then. Back to the collection as a whole, would you have changed anything? I think it does get quite repetitive when you read it all at once. For me, there are almost too many, too many stories, and it and it's very front loaded with the best ones. So by the end, Bar broke that mountain, the names and the ranches and the trucks and the spurs, they all kind of blur into one. What about you? I think that can happen as well when stories are published as short stories or when novels start as short stories. I often prefer like the original short story to the novel. I mean, the ones that stick out the most are the two super short, funny, creepy ones and Brokeback Mountain and and Diamond's story. I almost now can't remember. If you jogged my memory, I would, but I almost now can't remember any of the others. Would you say it's classic Annie Proulx? Well, the only other book of hers I've read is The Shipping News, but broadly, yes, because they're both about provincial North America, small town living, tough people, tough lives, community, nature. But the main similarity I found between those two books is that that she has a very specific way of writing, which is quite hard to get into at first. It's really abrupt. There's these like brusque sentences and wording, which almost sounds like a, 
an old-fashioned newspaper reporter delivering the story. And that's actually what the shipping news is about, but but it's it's here in this one too. She's now 89, but I read a review from a few years ago which described her as... No, an interview a few years ago which described her as abrupt and prickly, which is exactly how I'd expect her to be. Although at 89, I don't know what else you would be. I'm sure I'll be the prickliest person. I am sure you will be too. <laughs> Between now and then, will you be reading more Annie Proulx? Between now and the age of 89, I might try shipping news. That is one. That is what she won the Pulitzer for, isn't it? But I'm not sure the subject matter quite grabs me. And I have the most enormous pile of unread books in my bedroom as I've hardly been reading since the baby was born. So, I don't know. TBD. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Pandora, who's your author this month? It's another Annie. I like. I love the way you always ask me that, like, you don't know. It's another <laughs> Annie with a surname ending in X. It's no. Annie, Annie Erno and her autobiographical work of 2016, published in English in 2020, A Girl's Story, where she looks back at the summer of 1958 when she was an 18-year-old girl going to summer camp to be a counsellor. And it looks back at her relationship with an older counsellor in whose thrall she remains for many years afterwards. It's been described, or she's perhaps described it, as the origins of her writing life. And that's a a writing life which just won her the Nobel Prize, right? It did indeed. First ever French woman to win it. She won for the years, which was written in 2008, but only published in English much later. And when I read about that, I thought... I must read some of her, but I didn't want to read the years first. She'd written like 15 other books before that. So I started with a man's story about her father's life and then a woman's story about her mother's life. And I read them back to back, which I really advise, actually. And I wish I'd read all three of them in a row because it's then fascinating by the time you get to a girl's story and bits of it link up with what you've read in the other two books about her parents. But they're kind of, because they're so rigorously dedicated to each parent, you don't actually read much about her life until this one, which is where she looks back at this foundational and traumatic sexual experience in her late teens. I think the thing about Annie Erno, who's also in her 80s now, but her work wasn't translated into English for a long time. And even now, I think only about half her memoirs, or maybe two thirds, they're being published very quickly now in English since she won the Nobel. And she's been writing them since the 80s, I believe. But you may think, okay, well, she's won the Nobel Prize and I've never heard of her. And I had the same experience because her work was given so little airtime over here because she hadn't been published in English. Now, as I say, a lot of them are being translated and even kind of republished now that she's won that prize. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw my hands up and say when I when I heard she won the Nobel, I I I had I didn't have a clue who she was, and then I was quite daunted to approach her work because she'd won the Nobel Prize. I don't read loads of author. I I I want to read 
more authors in translation, but I don't read as many as I'd like to, especially not Nobel Prize winning ones. And she's actually really easy to read. I mean, the thing that I find most interesting about Erno's work is that she is famously rigorously averse to sensationalism and sentimentalism. Her work is a mix of memoir, history and sociology, but don't make the mistake of thinking just because it's about memoir, you're going to get feelings. In a way, she really reminds me of Proulx. Neither of them are decorative writers. They write really simply. They don't write to impress. Neither of them are persuaded by any sort of literary scene, which you can, you sense from any, I mean, they even say in any interview you read with them, that they're kind of really dedicated to this ruthless responsibility to their subject matter. Sometimes it can annoy me. But for the most part, it's really affecting. I did find I was very aware of of how smart this book was when I was reading it. And I, I think you can always tell when you pick up a, a Fitzcarraldo book with its its no cover cover that you're you're in for something that's gonna stimulate the old grey matter. But yeah, it's not it's not inaccessible. It's it's not especially dense either. It it it's very readable and it's only 140 pages long. Yeah, the old no cover cover. Something's I think happening at the moment in literary fiction as well and and maybe particularly at Fitzcarraldo is kind of the sparer a book is, the more daunting it can seem because I guess the more the more thinking you have to do. They're not they're not filling in all the blanks for you. There's actually a really good piece in the New York Times, I think it was on Fitzcarraldo. I'll find it and I'll link it in the show notes. They're this really young publisher and they've already published four Nobel Prize winners. Anyway, back to Erno. I once read that she keeps her prose really simple to read because she's atoning for once being ashamed of her working class background. Hold on, let me read this bit in The Observer. She had a big interview in there actually. The interviewer says, so she comments on the economical or factual style of Erno's books. She is determined that they be comprehensible to the social class she believes she betrayed by obtaining a degree in literature from the University of Rouen in 1971, becoming a published author and effectively joining the literary bourgeoisie. For Erno, influenced by the thinking of French sociologist Pierre Bordeaux, Class mobility is a violent, brutal process, and she sees it as her duty to at least attempt, via writing, to make amends to those she's left behind. So there's this real commitment to relaying class hierarchy and how, as she ascends through education and then through marriage, how much it alienated her from her parents. It's it's actually really interesting hearing that she mentions sociology a lot, or that sociology is mentioned alongside her, because... I remember studying sociology at A-level and and that's what this book reminded me of. Is That's sort of what I was trying to get at. I, I felt as much as I was reading someone's life story or someone's own memories, like I was reading a work of theory or, you know, sociology, philosophy, political theory. To put it more succinctly, I read her say recently in The New Statesman, I will write to avenge my people. Oh, that is the coolest thing that anyone's ever said. So yeah, this book is nominally about her time working at a summer camp as a teenager but she does spend just as much time theorising about class, about gender politics, but also really interestingly, and I loved this side of it, about what it means to remember and and what it means to inhabit your own past, but at an older age, especially an age where many, many years have passed. I think because I was so absorbed by the subject matter, having also been a teenage girl myself, I noticed the political theory more in her other books I mean certainly you feel it in this one there's all these little moments like when she has aubergine for the first time at the summer camp and describes it as kind of as this kind of like dark slimy vegetable but in this one what I was most slapped in the face by is how much despite being almost 
50 years earlier and a completely different setting it really reminded me of what it felt like to be a teenage girl like Erno I went to a Catholic all-girls boarding school and like Erno I was desperate for a single crumb of attention from a boy regardless of whether I desired them and the way she subjugates herself in the face of male desire the way she writes about it without pity or even more impressively any rancor is so relatable even though I don't think she's trying to be relatable she's just trying to be truthful and I found it really painful to read and then of course there is the rape which she still declines to describe as rape except to write she would like to be anywhere but there but she does not leave she uses she by the way to talk about her past self for there was no turning back things had to run their course See, there's an interesting parallel with um, close range there in the in the describing rape as anything but, but I guess in a different way here. The camp itself, the summer camp, it felt like a horror movie. It felt like a horror movie set. It felt like the, the Wicker Man or, or Midsummer because it's, it's in this old castle. It's always really sunny, but there's children dancing around shouting, we are summer's children. And then the men, the, these awful, monstrous, predatory young men, the leader of whom, uh, H, she refers to throughout as the Archangel. We are Summer's children. Also, doesn't it say she's never been anywhere like it, that people are happy all the time, which is always really suspect. How did you feel reading it? I was thinking when I was reading it that it's probably a very different experience reading it to mine because obviously you are not a girl who went to an all-girls Catholic boarding school. Is this the first you've read of her? Do you like her writing? Questions, questions. I'll answer in order. How did I feel reading it? Ashamed to be male. The Daily Mail would call you woke and self-loathing, Bobby. Both are true. Put it on my gravestone. I also felt desperately sad for her. it's, It's monstrous how she's treated, but it's... It's so recognisable even nowadays. And to answer your other question, yes, this is the first I've read of her. I, I don't know what I expected, but I was I was fascinated. I was really drawn in. I I don't think I've ever read anyone else who writes like her, which is what I think I loved. I love discovering a new author who's just totally different to everyone you've read before. And the way she writes about her past self as a different person means you're almost experiencing her out-of-body experience. I'm trying to think if she writes differently to anyone ever I've ever read before. I think the way that she writes about girlhood really reminded me of a, cert- a certain sort of ruthless, intellectual ruthlessness of Jacqueline Rose, who's a cultural critic, and also Rachel Cusk. But both of them use their kind of own... Ex- they both talk about feelings. They use their own experiences. So, yeah, I'm kind of with you that I can't actually think of anyone else who really does what she does. And I think to me what's also really interesting about this book is she really leans into the grey areas. For example, she becomes completely obsessed with H, the archangel, after this initial assault. You know, she doesn't run from him. She considers herself so secondary to his desire that she doesn't even spend the time ascertaining if she has consented. I mean, she writes, she has surrendered all will, entirely absorbed by his and by his experience as a man. Yeah, she talks a lot about Simone de Beauvoir and and the second sex. And in looking back at, at her time at camp, she's just as focused on the the power struggle and the and the, the the meanings of it as she is on remembering what actually happened to her and defining what was done to her. And even then, when she discovers the second sex, even though it's this huge awakening for her, and it made me wish I'd read some non-fiction as a a teenager to kind of contextualise everything for me. 
even reading that book though she doesn't then go what a bastard I realise there's still no feelings you know she's still really holding back she's just being led by fact and observation really what's your favourite thing about this book what's your I, I won't say what's your favourite bit because it doesn't really lend it to that but lend itself to that but what's your favourite thing about it I think the way she captures the yearnings and loneliness of female adolescents, the twin desires to be both visible and unseen simultaneously. She's just absolutely desperate to fit in and to leave her parents and her rural upbringing in the Normandy region of Yvetou or Yveto, which is a kind of protagonist in itself in her books. Behind, she describes herself as like a filly that has just fled the paddock, which I think is rather lovely. And then the way she's bullied at the summer camp where she is a counsellor is horrendous, but also incredibly engaging, especially as most of it goes over her head. She even writes to two of her fellow counsellors after she leaves, asking to meet up. And they never reply because as she reflects now, really in this really frank way, they probably thought she was a brainless little slut. But back then she thought she was part of something. Yeah, I... I winced at that but it's it's so horrible but it's only horrible because it's the unsaid thing it's 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 you know it's the truth and you sense before she even describes her past self as a brain as a brainless little slut not that she thinks but how she thinks she was seen you can actually sense in the way she documents them responding to her that that's exactly what they think of her she was just too naive to be able to tell and I mean she was as many teenage girls are totally deluded I mean she really believes that the archangel will come back to her and it really reminded me of prep actually which is Curtis Sittenfeld's first novel she's most famous for American Wife Sisterland uh, Rodham she just wrote romantic comedy which I loved but her first novel which grabbed me in a really similar way is about a lower middle class girl who attends an elite boarding school in New England and she has lots of quite similar observations and preoccupations. The pro- protagonist, I can never say that word, Lee, has the same obsession with class consciousness as well and a, feels that growing alienation from and shame towards her own parents and that same obsession with a boy who treats her appallingly. And it's a similarly uncomfortable read. I read both books and felt very sad and at other points I wanted to grab the protagonist and say you silly fool you know that bit when Erno is rejected from returning to summer camp the following year it's just agony and you think but why would you want to go back to that place but then you know it also made me laugh at times in recognition the precociousness and pretension of being a teenage girl who wanted to write It's fabulous to be young, she writes in her diary. I'm in no hurry to clap on the shackles of marriage. And then again, she writes, and she says that she writes this often, life is for living. I was also full of all those anodyne adages too, but sadly, I did not turn out to be Annie Erno. There's like a real bittersweetness to it because you recognise all those things as being really young, right? But then also... It, that just makes it more painful to see what's done to her, and and you you're just so aware of how how young she is, how how she is being manipulated by by the men around her at such a young age. I was really struck by something that the sociologist and novelist Christina Detrez told the New York Times that Erno has this ability to de-particularize women's experiences. You're scared to recognize yourself because then you'll have to draw your own conclusions 
but you do, she says. And I haven't read enough of the rest of her work to know if that's always true. But I think for me, it was certainly true in this story. I think regardless of how you lost your virginity or if you have been the victim of sexual assault, most women will see parts of their adolescence, I think, in a girl's story. Yeah, I think that's what's what's great about the way she writes, that, that almost by stepping outside of herself, she makes this a girl story, a story about the experience of girlhood and therefore about how young women are treated in general, not just how she was treated at this one specific time. So she writes beautifully about young women and about herself as a young woman, but she is obviously much older now. She is, as I've said, also in her 80s. And I love reading interviews with her. She comes across as very warm and quick to engage. She's really committed to community and to change. She's a really vocal proponent of Me Too, which has struggled to get off the ground in France. Hi, Catherine Deneuve. Hi, Johnny Depp on the red carpet at Cannes. And she's a supporter of the... Guillaume who protest regularly against Macron and his politics. So she's very much a hero for working class people and for women. She's a much loved figure in the UK as well. She did an in conversation event with Sally Rooney recently and it was this huge sellout which had like a a wait list and people clamoring to attend. Did she? I can imagine Rooney loving oh no but I feel like she'd have loved her I feel like Sally Rooney would have read Annie I Know when she was like 12 and then been maybe slightly put out at how she's becoming mainstream. Can you imagine their emails? Do you think they email? You're like in the, in the latest Sally Rooney, you could, you could just imagine that they probably have those sort of email chats. Dream Team. Very epistolary, her latest novel, isn't it? Yeah. So we, 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 like, we like Annie I Know. We like I Know. We're Erno fans. Would you have changed anything in this book? I don't think I can really, as it's her own life. I mean, part of me wanted her to get in touch with the Archangel, H, who she Googles and finds out that he recently celebrated his golden wedding anniversary to the woman he cheated on with, I know, and cheated on with lots of other women. Um, But part of me would have found that unbearable. He didn't deserve his own full life. He doesn't deserve a sort of civilised adult skin and she does note this though rather deliciously again no feelings no frills she said that of the two of them she would rather be her than him because she is the writer yeah i loved that and and there is if not a happy ending then then there is a sense of closure or reassurance in in that distance and in the way that she writes about it from such an assured perspective and and in knowing what what happened between her being you know that the girl of 1958 as she constantly calls her and her being annie erno as we know her in that respect, do you think this book is is classic or no? Sort of yes and sort of no, but that's only in comparison to a man's story and a woman's story, which unsurprisingly being about her parents don't convey much of female desire. It sounds like her other books do much more and that I may get a very different opinion of her and her writing when I read them. They sound much bolder. They're, I mean, they're obviously about her. They're her memoirs and I'd I'd only read the two about her parents first. But yeah, they feel very similar in the way they are written. Occasionally, the way they are written is quite annoying, I think. Did you find that? There's a lot of, how shall I write this? And it's taken me X amount of time to write this. And in writing this bit, or I shall start this bit as... I don't know what annoys me, but it does. See, I actually really like that. But only in the sense that I was reading it as quite tongue-in-cheek. It's very meta. I, I like it when an author goes like, I'm an author and you're reading a book and, you know, makes you makes you really aware of of the fact you're 
reading. I, I think it's quite a clever narrative device. It just felt like a waste of words to me, which is surprising from an author who is so economical with her words. And actually on, on that note, I like her response to people who say her books are facile because they are too short. She says... My books are so short because I spend a lot of time writing them. And to write, it's so much harder to be succinct. I should know. I rarely manage it. I am learning that she is the queen of the, the, the zinger, the one time. <laughs> because uh, that's, that's two for two. Shorter books are better. They're better. I'll die on that hill. They're better for me now with less time than ever to myself. Justice for short books. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask who wins the Battle of the Annies because we both liked both books. So we're the winners. We're the winners, really. But I will ask, will you be reading more Annie or no? We are the winners because we get to read books by Annie with an X. Um a hundy P I'll be reading more. I want to read Happening, her memoir about her backstreet abortion in her twenties before they became legal. I want to read Getting Lost about her affair with a married Russian diplomat. And there's another one, I think it's called A Simple Pleasure, about her affair in her 50s with a man in his 20s. And then when I've read at least those ones, perhaps a few more, I shall let myself read The Years, which is much the longest of her books. And as I've mentioned, the most celebrated. It's the one she won the Nobel for. How about you? After that, how could I not? I I frankly can't wait to get stuck in. Good. I'm so glad. As ever, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to get involved in the book chat, you can email us at bookchatpod at gmail.com. We'll be back on the 1st of August with a very different couple of books. We'll be taking it back to the noughties with an episode I, for one, am very excited about. High Fidelity by Nick Hornby and Bridget Jones's Diary by Helen Fielding. I cannot wait. Book Chat is hosted by me, Pandora Sykes, and him, Bobby Palmer, with sound by Joel Grove and production by Pandora Sykes. Catch you in August. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.